Hadassah, and I'm so excited to welcome you to Real Woman, Real Torah, a project of Bacheva Learning Center. We're here to offer you an authentic Torah learning experience, produced for women, by women. I hope you enjoy. Thank you so much to Esther Babayev for sponsoring today's episode in honor of her family. We are so grateful for your support. Hi, everybody. Um, it is an honor to welcome Dr. Leslie Ginsberg-Klein. Um, she is the academic dean of the Women's Institute of Torah Seminary and College. Um, she is a scholar, an author. Um, she has lectured on many topics in Jewish history, um, and she specifically specializes in the topic of the history of Beis Yaakov, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Um, and I'm really excited to hear about your expertise in the topic, since that's something that's very uh, relevant to what we're going to be discussing in this podcast series. Um, so welcome, and thanks for joining us. Thank, thank you so much for having me. Okay, so I'm going to start just by asking you, like, before we get into the details of, you know, Sarah Schneer's revolution, um, maybe just give us a little bit of, like, a little bit of an idea of the historic backdrop um, to this story. Um, you know, what kind of educational opportunities were available to women before this, leading up to the Bisiakov movement, um, you know, whether formal or informal? Um, how was sort of what was going on beforehand that sort of led to this, this revolution? Okay. Well, Sarshner founded the first Space Yaakov School in 1917. Before that point, most communities, I'm going to speak to, she founded this school system in Poland. So I'm going to speak to kind of the Eastern European scene in modern Jewish history. So before that point in Poland and Eastern Europe, the Jewish community considered Jewish education, formal Jewish education for women to be unnecessary, inappropriate, even forbidden by halacha. Most Jewish, most Jewish education was informal. So women learned what they needed to know about Jewish practice through apprenticeship with other women in the home. You learned how to keep a kosher kitchen from watching other women keep kosher, the women in your family, your mother, your grandmother. That's, that was the extent of Jewish education. If you are from a wealthier family, so girls in wealthier families sometimes attended cheder for girls, sometimes attended cheder along with their brothers for boys. Um, the extent of that would would be literacy, like enough Hebrew to read the Siddur. They certainly weren't learning, learning Torah the way we conceptualize it today. So um, in the all-girls haters, again, this was for wealthier girls, so they would learn how to read. The same in the boys' haters, they would join for a few years until they learned how to read, and then that would basically be the end of it. Uh, wealthier people also had tutors sometimes coming in, teaching different subjects, including, again, like Jewish literacy, literacy in Hebrew. Okay, interesting. And I'm just, I'm curious how this, like, fits into the broader scheme of, like, Jewish history. Like, is this... Are women generally less educated, more educated than they have been, you know, in previous, you know, eras? So um, they were more educated in their secular education and and probably equal educated in in their Jewish education. I mean, remember the formal schooling, the way we think about it today, didn't exist for boys or for girls. So there was a cheder system and it was considered a communal responsibility that boys attend cheder. So between the ages of like six and 13. And if a family couldn't 
afford to pay cater tuition, then the community paid for it. It was a communal responsibility. There was no similar communal responsibility for girls. There was no sense that a girl needed to get a Jewish education the way there was that sense for boys. Around the mid to late 1800s, more and more countries start instituting compulsory schooling. So that's the law that you have to go you have to go to school. Kids have to go to school. The start of the state school or what we would call today the public school systems. When that happened, so then you start having girls going to these state schools and getting a secular education and having no Jewish education, but a fairly strong secular education and generally stronger than their brothers. Because while the community would consider it bitul Torah, um, wasting time that could be spent in Torah study to teach a boy secular studies. So that concept didn't exist with girls. So therefore, if there was a quota of Jewish kids that needed to be in the school system, better to send girls and continue sending boys to the traditional cheder system. So boys either didn't attend these schools or they attended school and then went to cheder, but girls were getting this really um, a intensive secular education and no parallel Jewish education. And even when the required number of years was, you know, up until age 13, if families could afford it, so they were sending their daughters on to high school. And again, wealthy families, they're getting tutors to teach their daughters French and Russian. And that, that was the kind of thing that could get someone a good shidduch. Like you could boast, oh, my sister, she knows just how to speak four different European languages. That would be something that would kind of be like considered advantageous in a young woman. And especially with the expectation, you know, the Jewish community in Eastern Europe was predominantly poor. So the expectation was that women were going to be contributing to the family economy. So better they should learn Polish language skills to be able to talk to the non-Jewish customers. Someone has to do it. Why not be the girls? So you get a reality. And I think that still exists today in the right-wing Orthodox communities where girls have a far better secular education than boys do. And there are roots of that in in, um, Eastern Europe. Right Now, right. at the same time that girls' schools get professionalized, which is post-World War One, you start having boys' schools getting professionalized as well. So, you know, what was cheder? Like a hole in the wall? And, and for those who continued on past 13, you know, you're learning in the base madrash and sleeping on benches. You know, so the idea of, of having really more kind of official schools, more organized schools, that also takes off post-World War One, at the same time Beis Yaakov takes off. Right, right. Um, so so I guess like there were, I never heard about this concept of the girls' hater that you mentioned for the wealthy Jews. Like that's, that concept. Yeah, it wasn't common. But for right. example, if you read the memoirs of Glickel of Hamlin, who was a wealthy woman who lived in in um, what would become Germany in the, goodness, when did she live? In, in the 1600s. Uh, she writes that she attended a hater. You know, so they, uh, Pauline Wengeroff, writes a memoir in Russia in the 1800s. She went to Cheder. But again, these are mm. wealthy women. They are the exceptions, not the rules. Um, and these weren't, right. you know, super high-level educational institutions. <laughs> the descriptions right, of right, Pauline right. Wengroff, if you read her memoirs called Rememberings, it's, the, the descriptions of her Cheder are terrifying. <laughs> 
<laughs> not so glorious. Um, okay, so there is like this, and I think throughout history, we do see like these exceptional women who are, you know, relatively learned. Um, and I guess this is happening, you know, to like for like select few women, I guess, throughout history. Um, so I guess like what's what's happening in this time period um, when Sarah Schneer comes on the scene, I guess like what are sort of the cultural or like theological attitudes that um, are contributing to people being so, I guess, opposed to it? Like, why is this so revolutionary to people? Right. Um, is it the fact that we're making this widespread okay. for everybody? Is it the level of education she's offering? Right. Now, in the beginning, I wouldn't say it was the level because I don't think the level was quite there in the beginning. Um, it was the mm -hmm. concept of the community organizing schools for girls. It had never been done before. Now, mind you, not anywhere. Rav Hirsch had schools for girls in, in Germany. But in Eastern Europe, that was just it wasn't done. It's, it's just a similar matter of it wasn't done. And people believed that it was forbidden. So that, that's really what she was fighting against. But what was the controversy? Okay, so, so Sarah Schneer was not the first person to have the idea start schools for girls. And yes, schools did exist. They were generally, again, for the elite. There were school, you know, they were for the, the financially elite, the academically elite. Um, Yavna starts around the same time. That's more like intellectually elite. Um, Chavetzelet school starts around the same time. That's for wealthy girls. Um, what what Sarnschneer, what was different about Beis Yaakov was the idea of mass schooling, of no Jewish girl left behind, that everyone is entitled to a Jewish education and should get a Jewish education. That's what was different and new about, about Sarnschneer's idea. But that there were major issues in society at the time, that was not a secret. There were girls converting to Catholicism. Rachel Manikin has a whole book about the Jewish girls in Krakow who were Sarschner's contemporaries and were converting to Catholicism, not for out of some, you know, religious epiphany, but converting to Catholicism essentially to escape or running away to convents to escape. They were trying to, that was their way out of, of the Orthodox community. Um, that was happening. There were disturbing numbers of Jewish girls involved in disproportionate numbers in prostitution. That was very alarming. There were girls and young women going, what we call today, going off the derach. There were major societal problems. There were major issues with girls. There are articles and editorials of what are we doing about the problem of the, that Jewish girls and women are, are not religious. And that you know stems from the fact that they are getting a secular education and they have no parallel Jewish education. So all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's comparing something that's very like sophisticated and interesting with something that's like folk religion. There's something behind it. Sarah Schneer writes mm -hmm. about this, how like, you know, she's in a Hasidic community on the holidays in Yemim Tovim, all the men in the family go to the Rebbe and the women are by themselves. They know nothing about the holidays. They know nothing about the intellectual content, the spiritual significance, and their Jewish observance is empty. When she conceptualized Beis Yaakov, she didn't conceptualize it as a school. She conceptualized it as a way for girls and women to lead a Jewish life. It was never just a school, never. That was never how she was thinking about it. And initially, her initial idea wasn't even to start a school, it was to start a youth movement. Again, we're, we're, in, we're in like um, right around the, where, where she's you know, having these ideas. 
um, turn of the century, before World War One, and then after World War One. You have a society in Eastern Europe that's very into socialism and communism and all the other isms, and a Jewish youth that's educated and really idealistic. And these movements were appealing to girls. And what she kind of has this idea of like, well, well, I'm going to start a parallel social movement for being Orthodox. You know, it's a combination of a social movement and like a form of Hasidus because they were, you know, it's a very Hasidic community. That's how she originally thinks of Beis Yaakov. And she wants to start with the teenage population, but she fails because the teenagers are too kind of far gone at this point. You know, they were too already entrenched in secular ways to kind of walk it back. And so she has this idea like, oh, you know what would be a good idea if we start for as a school for young girls and start educating as a young from a young age. And so that's how she does. She starts at the school as a school. But like fast forward 20 years and there are schools and youth groups and publications, you know, like and. And um, the seminary, which is kind of a total institution, if you know, social movement theory, kind of like, you know, the institution where, where like you just live and breathe the movement. And, you know, it, it did ultimately become the movement that she initially envisions. So you have like and also, you know, with the Industrial Revolution, you have more and more girls entering, young women entering the workforce outside of the home. Like I said, they were always involved in business, but business used to take place at home or in businesses adjacent to the home. One of the revol- you know, revolutionary developments of the Industrial Revolution is that work, you now go to work. Work takes place somewhere else. And again, that's taking these girls out of the home environment. And that's something else that, that impacted the assimilation that is going to ultimately make Basiakov possible. Right. So so was it clear to people that like this was only, let's say this assimilation that was happening, this was affecting girls much more drastically than boys? Like that was that obvious to everyone? That was that was um, nothing's obvious to everyone, but was that written <laughs> about in newspapers? Was that discussed at conferences? Yes. That was that was discussed. <laughs> Um, there are plenty of newspapers in, in, in Orthodox papers and not Orthodox Jewish papers. It was, it was like a, a massive issue. And yes, that was discussed. And the lack of education was attributed as one of the problems. Um, in 1903, there's a rabbinical conference in Krakow. And this one Rabbi Landau, one of the delegates, says, we have like, they're discussing the, the, the Jewish girl, young woman problem. And he says, the solution to this problem is education. Like we need to start schools and he gets unanimously shot down. Like, Hmm. yes, um, you know, fathers should educate their daughters, but for the communities to establish schools would be wrong. So this wasn't like Sarah Schneer's like wakes up with an idea. This is something she's reading editorials about for years, back and forth in the papers of like, we should start schools. We shouldn't start school. We should start schools. We can't start schools. You know, this was an idea that was debated and was very, very politically fraught. Right. And I guess like hindsight is 2020. And now it seems like obvious that that was the right solution. But I guess at the time people were like, is this going to, is this going too far? You know, Um, is this like too revolutionary? Right. Um, Like to me, it seems like how could people not see the writing on the wall and like, you know, um, jump on board with her movement. I want to say um, something. 20 years later, you have somebody writing like an editorial about 
base Yaakov that is kind of is like a little bit funny. Like he's writing this editorial in a good paper of like, why did we ever have to write, ask permission to, why do we ever have to like get Haskamos for base Yaakov? Why do we ever need to like, like consider get when you ask for a scumma, you're suggesting maybe it was wrong. It was so obvious it was right. It was always right. It was always okay. It always should have been. And it's just like, oh wow, <laughs> like l- lovely thought there. But like 20 years ago, that was not the reality in your community. So you know, a lot of times wow. when things changes happen, then like there's like collective amnesia of like how it actually was, you know. But I, but I'm reading the sources and like 20 years later, it's like mm, no. That was not like universally known and accepted that of course we could teach Torah to women. Right, 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 right. Yeah. I feel like there's so many things like that and like the way, you know, Judaism yes. develops over time. Um, so with other question I was going to ask was, um, so, so it seems like, so Sarah Schneer has been doing this in, in Eastern Europe and there are other parallel programs happening simultaneously. Right. Um, so I'm curious to hear more about those. Like, you know, there's in other, you know, Jewish communities, there's other people sort of, you know, creating these educational opportunities. And I'm also curious, like, why, why does the base talk of get so much attention? Like, why is that the, like, what we sort of, like, um, refer back to as, like, this is what really made, created change in the broader Jewish community? So, again, the difference between base Yaakov is the numbers. So Beis Yaakov had something like 35,000 students by the 30s are, are going to Beis Yaakov schools. The idea of mass education is what set Beis Yaakov apart. We're going to have a Beis Yaakov in every town. You know, that's what set Beis Yaakov apart. Not for those girls who are super smart or come from prestigious families or have money. Every single Jewish girl. That, that idea of mass schooling. Mm-hmm. That's what made Beis Yaakov different. And then with mass schooling was like um, the idea of like expansion. You know, other school, other schools were like, we're a school, but it didn't have a vision of like, we want to expand all over Europe. Beis Yaakov had that. Um, mm. You know, I don't know what Sarah Schneer's initial intent was, whether she was planning on, on um, expanding beyond Krakow. But other towns start approaching her and saying, hey, we heard you have the school. We heard it's a success. Can you start one in our town? So it starts organically just expanding. And and she did quite a few school. Like she herself expanded quite a bit. And then after a couple of years, um, Agudas Yisrael, the Agudas Yisrael organization, so once is very involved also in education, in reforming boys' education and reforming girls' education. And they were extremely concerned about the secularization of girls and women. So Agoda wants to get into kind of the girls' education game. And someone, you know, they hear about Sarah Schneer and it's like, hey, instead of reinventing the wheel, there's this woman. She's got something going. It's successful. Maybe we partner with her. And Aguda effectively does that in, in locally, but really when the international Aguda movement in 1924, they partner with Sarishnir and effectively take over the Beis Yaakov movement. Um, they, they are all about expansion. So at that point, like the schools start growing, you know, exponentially and there's central offices in different places and, you know, there were, I, I'm thinking off the top of my head, pre-war, there were something like 250 Beis Yaakov schools 
35,000 students. I mean, that, that's, that's massive. Wow. Yeah. That's it's really, crazy. really massive. So, I mean, so most we, of those schools were afternoon schools. Like after school programs. After school programs. Yeah. In towns where, you know, girls went to public school and then they went to base Yaakov. Uh, there were some big, the big cities had day schools. And then there was, you know, the base Yaakov seminary, which was kind of the crown jewel of the movement. Got it. Okay. Hmm. So, so maybe tell us more about like what happened in those 20 years, right? You described like there's t- this gap of 20 years where beforehand that people were like vehemently against this movement. And then 20 years later, everyone's like, Oh, why would, why would anyone have a problem with it? Right. Um, um, so like what happens in between, right. like what's the, res- what kind of resistance is she facing? And like, how does she get past that? And like, you know, end up creating such a successful movement. So she, when she wants to start the movement, so she, well, she wants to start a school, right? She wants to, she, she comes back. Okay. Sarah epiphany happened kind of in World War I. She writes in her diary, she was concerned about this issue of assimilation in her community for many, many years, but she didn't really see how she was going to impact that. I mean, Sarah Schneer was poor, uneducated. She was divorced. She was a woman in a society when any one of those things would have been an impediment to leadership. So she doesn't see how is she going to make a difference. And then World War right. One, her family goes to Vienna, and she ends up in the shul of a rabbi, Doctor Flesh, who was a student of Rabbi Shamshim Rafal Hirsch, and she is exposed to neo orthodoxy, and that is really impactful for her. You know, Rev Hirsch's works, they weren't available in Poland. The Polish leadership and community didn't think that his works were relevant because they thought they were kind of immune to modernity, Mm. which of course is, you know, kind of like laughable in hindsight, right? They thought we're immune, you know, we're immune to modernity. We don't need this. We're all insular. We're not impacted by the outside world. Okay. And, and Rav Hirsch, Rav Hirsch give, provides an intellectual understanding of how to um, be from in the modern world. He engages with that. And that, to Sarchner, is like so inspirational and eye-opening. And she comes to believe of like, like hey, if, if the girls and women in Krakow could learn what I'm learning here, like... They would love that. They would want to be from, they'd want, they would embrace it. And one particular moment she writes, this was kind of like a pivotus, was on Shabbos Hanukkah when this um, Rabbi Flesh is speaking from the pulpit and he's talking about the heroines of Hanukkah. And he says to the women in the audience, like, you should be heroes. You, you need to be heroines too. And that was impactful to her because not only do you have like a rabbi speaking about women from the pulpit, but speaking to women from the pulpit, which didn't happen in Poland. And she really takes that charge to heart. And she comes back to Krakow and she's I'm, she's she's going to start her movement. She organizes learning groups and classes and all different kinds of things. And she's meeting with different Rebetzins of different Hasidic dynasties and trying to build support. And she just fails over and over and over again. And then, like I said, she has, she goes to like, you know, it's not going to work with teenagers. We have to start with young girls. So she decides to start this school and she writes to her brother who was a bell, her family, they were Belzer Hasidim. So she writes to her brother who's a Belzer Hasid, I'm starting a school. And he's like, why would you get involved in something so political? Like, why would you get involved in politics like that? And 
And she's like, I'm, I mean, I'm doing it. Like I'm doing it. So then he says, okay. So then he encourages her knowing, you know, this is a Hasidic community to go to the Belzer Rebbe and to get a bracha from the Belzer Rebbe. Cause of course, if you could get a bracha from the Rebbe, that would be extremely potent and valuable. So she, they go to the Belzer Rebbe and she, um, she, they, he writes a kvitzel of like, my daughter, my, sorry, my sister wants to lead Jewish daughters in the Jewish way. And the rabbi says, bracha vatzlacha. And she's like, great, I'm running with that. You know, and, and, and she's like, she said that that gave her kind of like the self-confidence of like being successful. And she just starts her school. And I, I think, you know, um, Rachel Mankin writes about this story. Naomi Seidman has a book on Sarshner and Beis Yaakov. She writes about this. Like, why was Sarshner able to start schools when, when the community had the idea, but they were just paralyzed? The leadership was just paralyzed. And, um, and she says that, you know, because Sarshner was a woman, she was kind of able to sidestep that whole religious political debate. You know, they're, where are they arguing? So they're, they're arguing in... in the base medrash and they're arguing between all these men in doing their op-eds in the newspapers. Well, while everyone's just like talking, she just goes and starts a school and starts teaching girls kind of like quietly. And, and then it's successful. And I think when you ask what changed, what changed was, was success. The community saw she was successful. So she begins to get support. Right now. That's not to say the support was, universal. You know, there's stories of people throwing stones at her. And when you read writings of the other Beis Yaakov leaders, they're just like, she had zero support. She like, she, she had opposition. There was opposition, but I think more than opposition, there was apathy. People just didn't care. They didn't care. They didn't think it would make a difference, whatever. She dealt with so much apathy. So she had to fight against both um, apathy and opposition. So an example of opposition would be like the Baba Varebi was against Beis Yaakov because he was worried that in bringing different girls from different Hasidic sects together, that um, they would, their unique observances would be diluted. And basically everyone, like all these girls would start just taking on the kulas of everyone else, you know, taking on the leniencies. And he was worried that ultimately it would damage observance. That's if you want to know um, one of the opposing voices. Um, and she tries to change his mind and, and she can't, she's, she's not successful. Um, but again, she's relatively quiet and she's relatively small. Um, when, and like I said, she deals with a lot of apathy. She deals with some opposition. Um, there's some stories about like a girl comes home and her aunt is visiting and like, what is this? It's her notebook from Basiaco. And she like rips it up. This is Trafe. Um, there, there were nicks, people who nicknamed Basiaco base Asa Okay. Um, so, so, but what ultimately, um, so when a Gouda gets involved and a Gouda is a very politically savvy organization, um, they knew in expanding, they were going to face opposition because they faced opposition on basically everything they tried to do. And so they start kind of shopping around for, um, so start, I'm not shopping around, it's the wrong term, collecting so when they face opposition, they can like say, well, here we have this letter. Um, but ultimately, we know like what changed, what what changed was success. I believe what changed was success. She did something, it was working. So other people took notice and said, hey, 
there's something going on here and, and it's good and it's working. We should support it. And, and over time, that's what ultimately happens. Like Basiakov's, the success of Basiakov is what helps change attitudes towards the idea. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it, it kind of reminds me, I mean, a lot of movements in Judaism are like this, but like the Hasidic movement, for example, there was a lot of opposition at the beginning. And then like over time, when people see that, right. oh, this is making people more religious, not less religious. So it probably wasn't such a bad idea, you know? Um, I feel like it, right. like just experience helps with changing people's attitudes, you know? Um, so uh, something else. Yeah, I and also, you know, it's like post-World War One, like the community was, I mean, between World War I and World War II, like the community was in really bad shape and getting progressively worse from, from a religious perspective. I think that there was kind of like the increasing awareness. You get something successful and the increasing awareness of like, yeah, we, we have to make changes. Do something. This is not a good, yeah, it's not a good situation. It's not working. Right, right. So something I always right. wondered about is like, so Sarshner is like wildly successful and she's creating this movement and it's like, like it's just going and going and growing and growing. And then World War II hits um, and pretty much everything, life in Europe is destroyed completely, um, tragically. And then, and then sort of we have like sort of at post-war, you know, sort of Bishop women sort of restarts again afterwards. And I always wonder like what, I mean, it's hard to know exactly how things would have developed had that not happened. Um, but like, how has that interruption, like I guess, impacted the growth or development of Bishakov? Um It's completely different. It's mm-hmm. completely different. I mean, aside from the name, I don't ask me what Basiakov in Europe and Basiakov in America have in common. Hmm. The name. That's about it. The name. And that they're both schools for for um, Jewish women. It's a fundamental shift. And Basiakov in Europe was a product of the European Orthodox community, the same way that Basiakov in America is a product of the American Orthodox community. But they're completely different. They're completely different. I mean, I, I, it's like off the top of my head. Okay. Um, again, Basiakov in Europe, they were Rav Hirsch schools. They were Rav Hirsch ideology. If you look at the book list of the Basiakov seminaries, it's it's like Chumash with the parish of Rav Hirsch, Chorev, 19 letters. You know, it, I mean, it's a list of, um, they, they were studying Rav Hirsch. Um, the, you don't have that in America. There's no, no there to quote um, Shani Beckhoffer, who wrote her dissertation on Basiakov, is collective amnesia about the Rav Hirsch origins of Basiakov. And for that matter, the Rav Hirsch origins of Aguda. Aguda was a Rav Hirsch organization. That's kind of collectively forgotten as well. So that, that's mm-hmm. a fundamental difference, because that's just not the ideology that the American Orthodox community went with. So that's you don't see that in the Basiakov schools anymore. They were also mm-hmm. um, very Hasidish in, um, in Poland. You kind of they're very Hasidic in Poland and they're very Litvish in America. The parallels are still there. Like you, when you, when you read students talking about Sarah Schneer in Poland, they talk about her like she was a Hasidic Rebbe. They talk, they're Hasidic and they talk about her like she was the Rebbe. When you read Beis Yaakov students talking about Rebetzin Vichna Kaplan, who was Sarah Schneer's student and started the high school in America, they talk about her like she's a Rosh Hashiva. Like you, she was one of the mm-hmm. Jole Hador. She was our, she was like our Rosh Hashiva. You, know, you, you hear that, that same. So the, the parallel to the male um, yeshiva world is there. 
but it takes on the form the, of, of that community. Um, so that's, that's a big difference. Another, but the most fundamental difference is that Beisiakov in, in Europe was, was a movement. It had a central office. You, you, you couldn't just start a Beisiakov school. You had to let the Beisiakov central office started the schools and they had standardized curriculums and they had newsletters and summer institutes. It was a, it was a movement. Beisiakov in America is a collection of schools that have the same name. But that's it. Right. Anyone can start a base Yaakov. You don't need permission from anyone. And you have like more right-wing base Yaakovs and less right-wing base Yaakovs and base Yaakovs competing for the same populations in the same city. You'd never have any of that in Europe. You would never have competing schools. Sarshter herself was a Belzer Hasid and it sounds like it was very largely like a Hasidic population in the base Yaakovs in Europe. And it's interesting to me that yes. I mean, there's other, there's other um, you know, obviously Orthodox schools in America that are not, they don't call themselves base Yaakov, you know, for the Hasidic communities. Um, and it's interesting to me that only like the Lipish community, I guess, called her schools based Yaakov when like the original based Yaakov schools in Europe weren't necessarily Lipish versus Hasidish, right? They were, it was definitely. No, they cool. weren't. They weren't Lipish. Um, like how did that happen? I'm just like curious about that. Yeah, I think because they started, I, I think two things. Number one is because base Yaakov was there first. Then when kind of the Hasidic communities arrive a little later, they're like, oh, we're going to start our own thing. But also like. Within America, they're already coming into a community with compulsory schooling, with kind of the idea of school systems. So, like, so, you know, they're coming into this community and they're going to start their school system. Now, some of it might be because of opposition. Okay, Satmar still thinks that the way Torah is taught in Beis Yaakov is against Halacha. Hmm. So, a lot of that's behind, you know, say Satmar starting their own school system. Um, you know, in out of town communities, Hasidic girls go to Beis Yaakov. It was only in those places where there was enough of a critical mass to start their own schools that they started their own schools. And they kind of like did that, like came with that already. So, you know, they weren't going to public school. So therefore they're just going to start their own schools. Right, right. And, and to what degree are, I mean, Beis Yaakov schools and other, you know, from schools um, in America today, to what degree is their curriculum based off of the original Beis Yaakov? Because I know, for example, like across the board. Zero. Um, zero. Because <laughs> no, one thing I found interesting is that across the board, all, all, all from girls' schools focus a lot on Tanakh, for example, right? Which boys' yeshivas do not do. Um, Tanakh has a huge emphasis, Chumash, you know, learning Chumash with Mepharshim and all that. Right. Um, and I'm curious, because does that do, that, that, do those all have seeds in the original, the focus of the original Beis Yaakov movement? Is that just um, like a consensus everyone came the, to? Like, right. So, so, so part of the rhetoric of, of Beis Yaakov from the male perspective, now mind you, I want to just make a point here, okay? When you hear Sarah Schneer talking about, when she writes about the movement, okay, her students write about the movement, her colleagues write about the movement, even the men who are initially involved in the movement, they never talk about the legitimacy of the movement. That's never a thing. That Beisiakov is good and right isn't even up for discussion. It's not even, it's, it's not even a concept. You don't have that mentioned. It was more in, in, in the male writing that it was like, well, what are we doing about the fact that we're doing this school, when there is that statement in the Gemara, Bito, Torah, Kilu, Lamdila, Tiflut, you know, that if a, a man teaches his daughter Torah, it's like he taught her immorality or frivolity, but whatever. But that's the basis. That statement is the basis of the women. It's also for women to learn Torah. So one of the distinctions that gets made in kind of the, in the, um, 
the male rhetoric, the rabbinic rhetoric at the at the time. And rhetoric's not the right word. The rabbinic responses at the time. One of the distinctions that gets made is that that only referred to Torah Shabbat, not Torah Shabbat only refer to written Torah. So therefore, Chumash is okay, but Gemara is not. So, and, and the Chavetz Chaim, his letter like, kind of lists off like Gemara, I'm sorry, not Gemara, um, Tanakh, ethical works like Pirkei Avo, in Pirkei Avo. So, so um, that influences the basic of curriculum because you have cut out Torah Shabbat Peh. So then you're going to focus on Torah Shabbat so, I mean, in that sense, the curriculum was similar because they didn't weren't learning Gemara in Europe and they weren't learning Gemara in America. But um, the like I said, in in Europe, there was much more of a Hirsch focus, which you don't have in America. But I don't think you can. The level of learning in America is so much higher and so much higher today than it was, let's say, 50 years ago. You know, you just can't compare like the skills level that our students have today who have started learning from preschool. You, you can't compare like the, the kinds of like um, analysis and, you know, like analyzing Meforshim and, you know, going really in depth um, in terms of Meforshim and text study. That, that's happening on a higher level today than, than it was. Right. It sounds like in the original Bishop of Women, it was much more inspirational and, um, you know, focus. I, more. I don't. I don't want to say that because because it's not that they weren't learning and and they did they pride it the women in the movement they pride themselves on their learning and mm-hmm. and like and community leaders male and female like lauded the the intellectual achievements of the women in Basiaco. It's not that. I would say it's 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 a simple reality piece. They didn't have the skills that that girls in Beis Yaakov have today because they didn't start at the same age. You know, those first girls in Beis Yaakov, they, they were, they're starting to learn later. So, you know, like that, that has, that takes time to develop. I mean, globally, the I mean, look at what was taught in, in Beis Yaakov and secular studies in America in the sixties versus today. I mean, we have robotics competitions and, and you know, the, like all of these, interesting high-level programs like globally they just the schools have gotten better the level of learning has gotten better that's 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 um kind of like a characteristic of age you know as schools develop they tend to get better over time right you know so i i don't know that it was something that i i I want to more say it was kind of like a practical thing of like of course they weren't analyzing kliakars in 1920s in poland who had the skills for that you know, but when you start, when you when you start at a young age with the goal of by high school, you're learning on that level, then the whole curriculum is designed differently. Yeah, you know, that they're, makes sense. they're learning how to read Rashi in, in third grade or even maybe potentially young or probably, you know, learning the, you know, the, the Torah curriculum, the initial curriculums of Beis Yaakov is like, what am I? I am a Jewish kid, you know. <laughs> They didn't have it. It wasn't there. I mean, one of the things that Goethe did was they were they imported these academics, these Orthodox men and women who had PhDs from Germany into Poland to kind of like beef up the curriculum. Because there weren't though you didn't have those educated people. Now over time, 
you get those educated people in Poland, but they they didn't exist. You know, Germany was farther developed in this in this respect, so they didn't exist. So similarly, when they first come, you know, transplant to America, you know, I, I don't want to like disparage the schools in their early years, but you know, they probably did the best they could, and there were some great teachers, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm not questioning that, but but you can't think that the skills of of girls in 1940 are what the skills are are today. They're just learning on a higher level now. I think globally, just education for women globally has just gotten stronger. Right. I, I think it's an interesting point that like sometimes changes that happen aren't necessarily because there's any, like people of a, of a different generation had like any theological reason why education wasn't past a certain point. It just takes time for schools to, you know, develop and, um, you know, get better at teaching skills and, and encouraging higher level learning. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, and what's kind of ironic is that while the education is better, they like talk about the Jewish education less. If you look at analyses, um, Shani Bakar has like an analysis of like ads of schools and they'll talk about like warmth and meadows and, and at, well, you know, they'll talk about those elements, whereas the education is getting better and better, but like it's being downplayed. In, in like advertisements and in like, you know, rhetoric. And everyone, every couple of years, you get one of these articles in one of the glossy magazines about like, what are we teaching our girls? If they learn too many Mephorshim, they're not gonna wanna be mothers. They're gonna be bored and disappointed as mothers. And it's uh, every time I see one of those, I just like shake my head, like, has that happened yet? No. There's, there's right. nothing mutually exclusive about loving learning and loving your kids. Right. You can do both. You can do both. You can That's learn great. and you can be a great mother. You can learn and you can change diapers. One is not, yes. and you can be okay changing diapers, even though you know how to, how to analyze a Ramban. And right. I've yet to see like throngs of Asiakov girls be like, no, we don't want to get married. Like, that's just not happening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. But if you know the articles I'm talking about, they like, you know, they, yeah, they, yeah, totally. they show up every now and again. Right, right. It's like the same way women throughout history were had no problem being successful businesswomen while also being moms. Same thing. Yeah, totally. Um, okay, so just to end off, I have a few like just general questions. Number one, what do you think is the biggest misconception people have about um, the history of Beis Yaakov? Oh, so many. There are so many. Um, do you know the song in a little town in Krakow? No. There's like a, a famous song about Basiakov. It goes in a little town of Krakow. Okay. Krakow is like a major metropolis. It's like singing a song in a little town of Chicago. Like Chicago's not a little town. I think the whole Basiakov story has kind of been like fairy taleized. She was this little seamstress in a little town who becomes this overnight sensation. And it's like, no, first of all, she lived in a massive city. There was tons of like rhetoric and controversy and politics around women's education. And she fails numerous times before she starts successfully starts Beis Yaakov and, and is successful. And um, I think that's a shame because I think there's a lot of inspiration to be gotten from her perseverance. 
and the fact that she didn't give up and she tried different things, even though she was not an overnight success. She was not an overnight sensation. She dealt with a whole lot along the way, a lot of failure and a lot of adversity. Um, I think that's one. Um, the other piece that that I hear all the time is like how Sarah Schneer made a pilgrimage to the Chavetz Chaim before she started Beis Yaakov. And, you know, that that never happened. You know, that contradicts her own that contradicts she right that just contradicts her own memoir and her own that just didn't happen that never happened um mm. you know Agoda contacted the Chavetz Chaim and asked for a letter of approbation in 1933 mm. in response to a rabbi in a specific town who was blocking Sershner's students from opening the Beis Yaakov there and she writes about this she's she writes mm. about how you know, this rabbi is giving us trouble, but Agoda wrote to the Chavetz Chaim and he's sending a letter and they're going to publish it in the Beis Yaakov Journal. And that's kind of the story behind the Chavetz Chaim's letter, which is, you know, dated 1933. Hmm. Um, but to my knowledge, I mean, she never, Sarshner never met nor ever spoke to the Chavetz Chaim. And there's zero evidence that that did happen and tons that it didn't. Right. Because again, she writes about she writes about the Chavetz Chaim, and she never visited him or spoke to him. Interesting. So those are two off the top of my head, but um, <laughs> there are there are, there are many. <laughs> okay, and, and last question is: What do you think is, uh, I guess, most That's inspiring to you um, from you know all the research you've done about you know Sarah Schneer's story? Like, what have you found to be, I guess, the most inspiring messages that we can take from it? I would say the power of the individual that one person can make such a significant impact and someone who like had every excuse to bow out, right? She had every excuse to say like, what can I do, right? She had everything against her and yet she persevered. And I think it's the power of like grassroots efforts and grassroots work that she just saw a problem and she just did the work that needed to be done to solve it. And her one little school, her idea, her creation grew into what Beis Yaakov is today. And I think that's incredibly inspiring. And, and you know that her charge, her last will and testament to her students, her charge to her students is be leaders. You have to be leaders. That was what she did. And that is literally the legacy that she imparts. Wow. That's really powerful. Each one of us has something that we can do and we can contribute and we have to be leaders. <laughs>